So let's start with the very basics. Okay, who was Howard Zinn? What is this book that we're talking about? Some of you may have heard of it. Some of you may not have heard of it. Some of you may be hearing it for the first time. So Zinn himself was actually born in 1922 in New York City. He served in the U.S. military during World War II, and then he went to NYU, and he went to Columbia, and he went on the GI Bill. He actually got his PhD in history at Columbia, and he was a minor in political science, and his dissertation actually was on Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia, who was also a congressperson from New York City. People who are from New York may recognize that name. LaGuardia Airport is named after Fiorella LaGuardia, for those of you who fly in and out of Queens. And so Zinn did his initial research on LaGuardia, and that research eventually became a book. Zinn's first professor job was actually from 1956 to 1963. He taught history at Spelman College, which is interesting, right? Because some of you are aware that Spelman College was or is um, a HBCU in Atlanta. So you have a Jewish guy from New York, uh, went to uh, NYU in Columbia, gets a teaching job at, at a historically black college university of Spelman College in Atlanta. And he worked there, as I said, from 56 to 63, and he actually ends up getting fired from that job. And he gets fired from that job for what is termed to be insubordination. Now, it's a much longer story that we can go into now about what that actually meant, but during this period, the civil rights movement is obviously picking up steam and becoming a nationwide movement of civil unrest, and Zinn was deeply involved with the civil rights movement, so much to the point that he actually convinced several of his students to drop out of school and join the movement. And his encouragement to students to drop out of school did not sit well with the administrators of Spelman College. So needless to say, there was a rift that developed and eventually he was let go from that position. He winds up becoming a professor of political science at Boston University in the mid-1960s. And it's interesting, right, because he got his PhD in history at Columbia. He minored in political science. His first job was teaching history, but at BU, he becomes a professor of political science. So I already have someone who's kind of transversing disciplines, right? Starting out in history, going to poli-sci, and kind of straddling that line back and forth. And BU is a much different place from Spelman College. BU is an elite private institution. It's a tier one research institution. It's got a large endowment, and it's a largely white demographic from the Northeast. So it's a very different vantage point about, you know, from which to write U.S. history and to be involved in the civil rights movement. In 64, Zinn writes a book called The New Abolitionists, and this is actually a chronicling of sorts of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Some of you might be aware of that from your history classes looking at the civil rights movement. It's really an homage to the student revolutionaries, as he calls them, who were at the front lines of the civil rights movement doing the sit-ins, doing the freedom rides, it's really kind of an amazing book. Actually, if you go back and read it, I encourage you all to do so. I'll put the book name on the History Club website because it's really, it's really sort of like an on-the-ground look at some of the anonymous names and faces who are at the forefront of this movement. And what's interesting, right, is that these are all students, right? So these are um, uh, students from the ages of 15 to 24 who were organizing these sit-ins, who were planning these acts of resistance, and Zinn 
is embedded with them, he chronicles them, and he, you know, he sort of lionizes them in this book. And again, he's encouraging students to drop out of school, to join the movement, to be part of the revolution. You know, his vision is that the, the way to achieve justice is not to try and succeed within the system, but to actually revolt against the system entirely. And as mentioned, that was one of the things that caused him to have a rift with those at Spelman College and the administrators there. But you could see it's already in Zen at this point to be a revolutionary, to say that the system is not going to be the salvation. The salvation is to revolt entirely against the system. And he sort of continually uses this argument throughout his work. He's very much on the side of revolution and radicalism, and, and he owns it. This is not a label that is ascribed to him. It's a label that he uses to describe himself. Zinn was also heavily involved not only in the civil rights movement, but also in the peace movement and in advocating for the withdrawal from Vietnam. And actually in 1966, he debates a gentleman named Frank Meyer, who wrote for the National Review over troop withdrawal from Vietnam. And this is actually mentioned in a newsletter called Bring the Troops Home Now. And in 67, Vin, uh, Zinn actually writes something called Vietnam, the Logic of Withdrawal, where he basically argues that uh, the only course of action that's appropriate for the United States is to fully withdraw from Vietnam, regardless of whether that means conceding defeat or allowing a communist government to take over the country. And in fact, Zinn, throughout his writings during this period, and he's not alone in this, is very sympathetic to communism. He goes out of his way to say that communism, in fact, is closer to the uh, American ideals or the espoused American ideals than America itself. He is sympathetic to the revolution in China and the cultural revolution there. He is sympathetic to the Vietnamese struggle against um, both the French and American forces. He does not think that's uh, allowing communism to take over in Vietnam is a bad thing. And in fact, he makes the argument that what uh, Vietnam actually needs is a revolution. So you start to sense a theme in Zinn's writing. He's always on the side of revolution. He's always on the on the side of insurrection. And uh, that is a, a constant string throughout his writing uh, during this period. Uh, it's, Zinn is not alone in this respect, right? We have to understand that he's writing in the 1960s, which is an era of civil rights movement, Vietnam protests, upheaval in American cities. This is a generation of historians who saw history as not a space for contemplation, but for action. And, you know, there were historians who marched with Martin Luther King at Selma, and those historians called themselves radical historians. And they reframed the American story not as this ongoing striving for perfect democracy, but, you know, part of a uh, this revolution, this idea that America's role should be helping the people of Africa and Asia overthrow white hegemony. Uh, and these historians were called revisionists, which is interesting, right? Because we think of revisionist history of having this sort of negative connotation. But these historians during the 1960s, including Zinn, they owned up to the idea of being revisionists. For, their, for them, they were revising this grand arc of the American story and it's not a coincidence that this happened during the civil rights movement where there was a profound rethinking about what America was all about. And so this movement is all called, or it's all part and parcel of something called the New Left. And the New Left historians were represented in part 
by Zinn, but they were also represented by other historians. And I think one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is why out of this entire generation of historians who wrote and thought this way, do we remember Zinn and not remember the others? For example, at the 1969 American Historical Association annual meeting, there was a group called the Radical Caucus and there were 500 uh, scholars in that group. They were actually led by a man named Staunton Lind, who in his own right was a very prominent historian of his time. So why do we not remember Staunton Lind? Why do we not remember the other 499 historians? Why do we only know Zinn from that period? I think that's an important question to ask. And it actually gets at some of the questions that Zinn himself was asking, right? Why do we know about certain people and why do we not know about other people? And throughout his scholarship and his activism and his life, Zinn asked that question. So I think we also need to ask that question of Zinn. Why do we know him, but we don't know these others? As I mentioned, Zinn was a self-professed radical, and he was not only an opponent of conservatism, he was also an opponent of liberalism and progressivism. The new left, the radical historians, they were equally critical of progressives and liberals as they were of conservatives. Folks like Zinn considered the New Deal to be a failure. They felt like it sort of placated the neoliberal mainstream and didn't go far enough. And today you hear a lot of rhetoric about moderates and the culpability and complicity of, of political moderates, right? That liberalism was actually just re reifying and reinforcing certain hegemonic structures and really the answer to social problems lay in revolution and radicalism and folks like Zinn were trying to instill and invigorate a radical uh, revolutionary spirit in the United States that they felt that they saw in other countries in Europe, in Asia, in Africa and other places. Um, so Zinn was not the only person as we said to do this uh, but he became one of the sort of focal points for this movement because he was very visible, he was very active, uh, he was a scholar activist in the true sense of the word. He was not the first scholar activist by any means. Uh, one might think about John Hope Franklin, for example, during the 1950s, who was a scholar activist, African-American scholar, um, who was, you know, marching with Martin Luther King, was arguing during Brown versus Board of Education. But we do have this image of Zinn as sort of being the prototype of the scholar activist because Zinn was so active in these debates about ending the Vietnam War, arguing against capitalism, arguing against imperialism, rediscovering Marx, arguing against American exceptionalism. And throughout his teaching career at Boston University, he continues to espouse these ideas in his classroom. During the 1970s, he was sort of a celebrity professor on campus at Boston University. He had a lot of people who took his classes, a lot of people who, after they graduated, talked about how influential his classes were. And during this same period, this idea of this sort of radical history is morphing into something that is called social history, which is really history from the bottom up. So basically history that doesn't deal with presidents and statesmen and the workings of Congress, but history that deals with everyday people, with laborers, with people of color, with marginalized populations, with women. And this, this literature of social history uh, coming out of the 1960s really takes over in the 1970s to be sort of the dominant strain of historical 
production, historical scholarship during the period that Zinn is teaching and leading protests and being active on BU's campus. All of that is important because it leads up to the 1980 publication of Zinn's most famous work, which is A People's History of the United States. And at this point, Zinn is 58 years old. He's already well known for his activism, for his opposition to the Vietnam War, for his sympathy with revolutionary causes, and his connection to social history. And A People's History of the United States, it is really a compilation of a wide array and diverse set of works that had been published over the previous 20 to 30, 40 years. Basically, Zinn relies on other people's work to string together, you know, an alternate history of the United States that is not told from the perspective of the political class, of those who prior to had been considered to be formative in the shaping of the United States. And most importantly, I think he doesn't tell a story of the United States that is sort of on this gradual march towards greater and greater democracy, which had been sort of the thinking among historians over previous generations. This, this progressive, quote unquote, idea that the United States had been gradually and slowly progressing towards more equality, more democracy, a better version of itself, and that at each step along the way, there were these conflicts and these battles that ultimately ended in the United States getting closer and closer to the vision that had been set out for it in our founding documents. So Zinn's People's History of the United States purposefully doesn't tell that story. It synthesizes a lot of other people's work into a story that tells an American narrative from the perspective of those who had been marginalized, who had been pushed to the side, who maybe didn't benefit from the United States that um, other people had benefited from. So who did that include? It included indigenous populations. It included laborers. It included uh, people of color. It included women. He talks uh, at length about Columbus's arrival in the United States and his interaction with the Arawaks. He talks at length about various economic discrepancies and inequalities in the colonies, about how many people came to the United States indentured or indebted, and how many of them spent their lives indentured and indebted, uh, not to mention enslaved. Uh, he talks a little bit about labor strikes and labor movements. He talks, of course, about abolition and abolitionists, the civil rights movement. You know, he, he really goes through a, a, a long arc of American history and does so in about 654 pages. And he intends this book to really be sort of a counter narrative to what had been in American textbooks across much of the United States. And it's written as opposed to much of the historical scholarship at that time, which was, you know, scholarly written for other scholars. He writes it in a very popular and accessible tone. It's got a commercial publisher. So it is marketed as a book for the general public, whereas many of the other scholars who were working on similar projects and doing similar types of social histories were writing largely for each other. So this book comes out in 1980, and it is met with mixed reviews by historians. There are some historians who think it's great, that it offers a very important counter-narrative 
to what's out there and historians say that they're going to use it in their classes. There are others that question the book and think that it's basically a synthesis of other people's ideas, that it doesn't rely on primary sources, only relying on secondary sources. There's one very well-known historian named Oscar Hanlon who says of the book that, quote, the book pays only casual regard to factual accuracy. And indeed, Handlin and Zinn have this little back and forth in the pages of scholarly journals where Handlin points out all the things that Zinn got wrong <laughs> and kind of questions how he came up with some of his conclusions. And it becomes a book that has a lot of controversy around it for that reason, just among historians, let alone among the broader public. So the question is, why does this book become such a phenomenon? Why does it come to have this sort of lore and legend about it that it does? How does it become so influential in high school and college classrooms? And I think a useful entry point into that question is to think about my own experience with Zinn. So I went to high school in the suburbs of New York City, and I took a U.S. government class. Uh, as a senior. And in that class, our textbook was Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. That was our primary book for the entire school year. And my teacher in that class was a woman named Susan Altman. And Susan Altman had graduated high school in 1964, and she went to college in 1965 to 1969. So basically, she was on a college campus during the period where Zinn was at his height as an activist, as an agitator against the Vietnam War, and she was in the midst of this seminal moment in U.S. history where the youth were leading the charge against Vietnam and for civil rights. And Zinn was not only part of that movement, but he was looked up to and idolized as part of that movement. He was one of the leaders of that movement. So. That was her youth, and when she became a teacher, she carried that into the classroom. And Zinn was an expression of that revolutionary fervor that had been so formative to her in the late 1960s when she was a student. And she wanted to bring that into the classroom for us as students. And indeed, that story got repeated across the United States from a generation of people who had been part of the movement, had grown up with Zinn, and wanted to bring some of these ideas into the lives of their students during an era, you know, 25, 30 years later. And in fact, there's a historian named Jim Green who has written about this, and, and Green says, Zinn's book also met the needs of a hungry audience of teachers who had been students during the Vietnam War era and regarded the author as a hero. They wanted their students to read his book if they were forced to use more standard textbooks, as most high school teachers were, they wanted an additional counter-narrative. So I think part of Zinn's popularity is attributed to the fact of that he was active in writing during a very formative period for an entire generation. And there was this feeling of 1960s nostalgia that a certain generation of educators wanted to pass on to the next generation of students in their classrooms. And Zinn, with his book and his work, really becomes sort of, you know, a prototype for that. Um, and, and that has a big effect. But there are other reasons why Zinn becomes popular. Another reason why Zinn becomes popular is that his work 
actually becomes very influential to indigenous activists. So during the 1980s, after his book was published, that first chapter about Columbus's interaction with Native Americans and indigenous populations, that becomes used by indigenous activists as part of the arguments against the commemoration of Columbus, and in particular, the 500th anniversary of the commemoration of Columbus in 1992, which indigenous activists had been rallying against and rallying to oppose for several years prior, as it became clear that American and European governments were planning to mark this commemoration. And so Zinn becomes a very important uh, resource for that movement to talk about why, in fact, Columbus's arrival in the New World was a disaster for indigenous populations and why that whole history needed to be rethought. And so it's not a coincidence that that first chapter of Zinn's book is actually the one that most people know because it was the one that was used and highlighted by the indigenous rights movement as a way to strike back against these narratives about Columbus and about the discovery of the new world. But what I think is really most interesting about Zinn is that he becomes popular and sort of lionized in part because of some of the very things that he railed against. So Zinn was stridently anti-capitalist. He railed against the influence of money and corporate America and Hollywood. But in fact, it was those factors that helped to propel Zinn to the fame and notoriety that he currently has. Because when he lived in Boston at ta and taught at Boston University, Zinn was actually next door neighbors with the Damon family. And the son of that family, Matt Damon, went on to become a very famous Hollywood celebrity. And in fact, a lot of people learned about Zinn from the movie Goodwill Hunting. If you remember that movie, there is a scene where Matt Damon, who wrote the screenplay, says to Robin Williams, quote, if you want to read a real history book, read Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. That book will knock you on your ass. And in fact, if you look on IMDb and other places, you will actually see people who say the first I heard of Mr. Zinn was through Matt Damon's character in Goodwill Hunting. So Zinn being neighbors with Matt Damon's parents. They went oystering together. Uh, he had a house on Cape Cod and they went oystering together. They would have parties in their backyard. They would get together. And it's not a coincidence that as Damon becomes a Hollywood celebrity, he works Zinn into his work and career. He shows up in Goodwill Hunting. There's also a, a film that gets made in 2004 about Zinn called You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train. And in 2008, Matt Damon actually organized a reading of Howard Zinn in Boston with other, with other Hollywood celebrities. And that got turned into the film in 2009, The People Speak. So yes, Zinn's ideas were powerful. They were interesting. They offered teachers something to use in their classroom. But one cannot discount the fact that he also was friends with one of the biggest celebrities of our time, and that celebrity had an active hand in elevating Zinn to an audience around the world. It's also important to point out that Zinn's book sells under a million copies in its first 22 years of being out, but it really starts to pick up steam and popularity in the early 2000s during the George W. Bush administration because there was a very strong anti-war 
movement among progressive activists during the early 2000s opposing George W. Bush's invasion of Iraq and the Iraq War. And because Zinn had been such a vocal advocate against the Vietnam War, and some of you may remember if you were alive then, that there were a lot of parallels between Vietnam and Iraq in the early 2000s. So Zinn again gets resuscitated in the early 2000s as being this symbol of anti-war progressive fervor. And Zinn's book is used to catalyze the progressive uh, electorate against the war in Iraq and also in the 2004 presidential election, uh, which John Kerry ultimately lost to George W. Bush. It's actually in 2004 that Zinn is brought on stage at a Pearl Jam concert in Boston and sort of celebrated as a hero. It's in 2003 that Zinn's book is celebrated at the 92nd Street Y. And the guy who actually goes on to found the Zinn Education Project actually worked on both Howard Dean and John Kerry's presidential campaigns. So the politics of the early 2000s, the progressive movement, the anti-war opposition, to George W. Bush and the Iraq War helps to revive Zinn and helps to spur the Zinn Education Project, which is created and launched in 2008. And that project, which is underwritten by two other nonprofits, has been responsible for getting Zinn's work into classrooms across the country, using Zinn as a model for social justice education, and trying to get Zinn's ideas into classrooms nationwide to counteract what may be still in textbooks that are 30 or 40 or 50 years old. So it's really interesting, right? Zinn passes away in 2010, I believe, but his legacy lives on. He's become this hero and patron saint of the progressive left, the scholar activist, the agitator and the fighter for the forgotten person, the social historian. He's also, you know, a punching bag of the conservative right. Not surprisingly, Trump singled out Zinn in his 2020 address about history education as being part of the sort of radical indoctrination of American students, teaching people to hate their country and, and to not see you know, America as an exceptional nation that celebrates freedom. And, and it's, uh, it's really interesting how Zinn has become this sort of political football passed back and forth between the left and the right. Uh, it's also interesting to think about how Zinn has become what Zinn is, right? Because, again, he was part of a large school of historians who thought and wrote this way. But because of a lot of different circumstances, his visibility, his connections to celebrity, the Iraq war, politics, his alignment with politics and the political left and the progressive movement, also uh, just his own presence as a teacher and a lecturer, he's become the person that we remember, whereas all the other historians of his generations are probably names that we would not recognize and people whose works we don't read. So it's really, really fascinating to me how Zinn has become what Zinn is today. There's a lot more we could say about it, uh, but I've kind of talked here for about 25, 30 minutes straight, so it's probably time for me to take a drink of water and take a deep breath. But I want to open up the conversation. I want to think about... Um, this questions, a couple questions. One, you know, why do we remember certain people? Why do some people become elevated and, and valorized and others get forgotten? That I think was at the essence of Zinn's work. It's also at the essence of Zinn himself and his legacy. So I think that's interesting. I think the other question too is just, Zinn is 
one interpretation of the past. Um, should we see Zin as, as doctrine? Should we see Zin as um, the definitive end all uh, of American history? Or do we, or should we be reading Zin as one interpretation among several interpretations of the American past? And then I think there's also questions about the sort of politics of history education, right? Um, the conservatives have one view of history, progressives have another, and these different views become politicized and there become heated debates about what students should or shouldn't be reading, what textbooks should be used or shouldn't be used. You know, where does Zinn fit into all this? Where does the people's history of the United States fit into all this? How should we think about these things and what should we do about history education moving forward? Those are some of the questions that are on my mind and uh, would love to hear from others um, as we open up the conversation. I've turned the hand raising on. I'm going to invite Jonathan and Cyrus up uh, to start just to see if they have any reactions to the things that I've shared or if they have any thoughts that they want to share. And then we will go from there. Jonathan, Cyrus, why don't I give you guys the floor while I take a drink of water. Would love to hear your reactions to some of the stuff I've just laid out and how it all strikes you. I'll let Jonathan go first, but now we understand a little more about the Ben Affleck connection, I think. Yeah, I, I, looking back, I, I recall that because, but um, as the reason for the Ben Affleck connection. But um, yeah, I know I, I just, you did a phenomenal job, Jason, going through the history there. Um, the only time I've used it in a classroom, like I said, was with um, sort of a counter to um, an example of, of Columbus. And I, I reckon, recognize that there's bias from all perspectives, including his. But when I was asked to present something that was clearly bias from one perspective, I felt like we had to hear, it was a one time where I said a, a people's history of the United States makes sense because what, what, what I was given to teach was clearly a religious Columbus driven history of that time period. And I needed to counter that with the, with the opposite. Um, but I, don't, I, I guess it makes sense that, that he was so promoted by, uh, by Matt Damon. And I recall that line from the movie. Um, yeah, I, it's funny because when you, you talk about it, I could see how I the book wasn't really prominent when I had first discovered it, and then it kind of exploded in the years following. Uh, I'm going to pass it over to Cyrus now, and uh, we'll get some more educators up here, I guess, afterwards. Cyrus? Jason, thank you so much. I want to applaud something called nuance. Um, it's not always present on this app, and I love when I get to hear an extended discussion or you're putting him in the context of when is he on the left? When is he on the right? In a different time period, that changes. So I appreciate immensely your sort of highlighting and pointing that out. I think there's a separate little note. I think he's connected to the, I can't remember the guy's name, that did all the cartoon history of the, of all science and heart, cartoon history of America, I think, also lined up time-wise with exactly when he was sort of becoming more prominent. Um, as I talked about him being... I think there's a secondary note, not just that, as I pointed out earlier, he's peculiarly somehow become a primary source. I think it's also a workaround of the Texas textbook publishing buying power or others that textbooks know that they can't have the politics that might be prevalent or, or predominant in even the main authors of those books. But putting Zinn as a counterpoint or is a way for them, I think, to put their more left vision that they would prefer to have in their history um, and somehow still have it not appear as though it's a slanted from one perspective. That's just sort of an outreach little 
extended concept or a thing that I thought of when I remember going through the Texas textbook buying and you wonder why every textbook in the country is similar to that. But with that, I will definitely want to hear from other folks. But thank you so much for your nuance. Absolutely appreciate it. And um, let's hear from some other folks. And I do want to do a little shout out to Olivia Waxman, down, who's down below, and others who've agreed to um, host a session with us tomorrow on um, history education and what should we be teaching or what should we not be and beginning a community of teachers so we can have these debates without the textbook buying public being the dominant one. But I will refer back to you, Jason, and I definitely appreciate you uh, coming together with us. Yeah, you know, what's interesting, Jonathan, about what you said, and thanks for that, Cyrus. And yes, shout out to Olivia and all the folks who come to History Club each week and make this club awesome. Um, you know, Zinn was completely unapologetic about having a point of view. And in fact, his entire generation of scholars were. And that was another way that they sort of rebelled and rejected a previous generation of historians because an earlier generation of historians tried and strove for a sort of objectivity and sort of a neutral ground. And Zinn and his generation of scholar activists completely abandoned that and felt that the exigency and the urgency of the political moment that they were in, the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, you know, the sort of neoliberal encroachment of capitalism and imperialism into all aspects of life just demanded something different. And, you know, I think we're still grappling with that legacy, you know, all these years later, because there are still some folks, and this applies to journalism as well, right? There are still some who argue that the, the real way to do history or journalism is to be objective, is to try to strive for a, a neutral point of view, to let the argument take you where the evidence points. And then there are others, um, whether it be scholar activists or activist journalists uh, or just activists, period, that say, no, the urgency of our times require us to have a point of view. And I think this is a central, still a central tension within education and particularly history education. And so if history education is to have a point of view, well, whose point of view should it be? And the conservatives would say it should be our point of view. The progressives say it should be our point of view. And then you have people in the middle who say, well, let's read a balance of both. And so I think this continues to be a tension. But Zinn was not shy about leaning into that tension. And I think to your point, Jonathan, there's no harm in having Zinn be read in the classroom. I'm really glad that I did read Zinn when I did because I, I got a lot out of it. But I think to Cyrus's point, we still have to remember that that is a secondary source, not a primary source. It doesn't speak for itself. It comes from a particular time and place, and we have to be able to contextualize that. Can I ask you a quick question, which is partly personal to me as a political scientist who ended up teaching history. How much has have those two fields converged versus diverged? Or I guess, or is there something to that? Also a shout out to Jonathan there, who's coming to talk to my class, the power of this app. But Jason, how much of it is a political science and history have begun to merge versus had a separate past, or am I seeing something there? So actually, I would argue that history and political science are now further apart than they used to be. And the reasons for that are a couple. Number one, political science, uh, and if there are political scientists who want to refute me on this, please do. But my understanding of political science these days is that there is a wing of political science that is heavily quantitative and relies a lot on, on data and statistics and modeling. 
And the history profession has moved way far away from that. Um, there used to be a whole field of economic history that was very sort of quantitative and computational, but that field has almost completely died out. There are very few historians who still operate in that. Whereas in political science, that is still a very prominent part of the profession. Um, so whereas in the past, it wasn't uncommon to have folks like Zinn who sort of straddled the line between both, these days you are more likely, I think, to find political scientists who are also economists and vice versa, whereas historians are more likely to be sharing the hallways with gender and women's studies, with Africana studies, with American studies, and some of these other social history, cultural history uh, wings of, of the academy. No one talks about rational choice and game theory and history is what you're saying. Not to my knowledge, but I don't know the whole field entirely. But let's get a couple of other people into the conversation. Definitely want to give space for educators. So, uh, Melissa, thanks for being here in History Club and would love to hear any thoughts or reflections or uh, contributions that you want to make. Well, thank you for this room. I, it was it was fascinating. I um, really learned a great deal about Howard Zinn through your through your lens and um, and also about that zeitgeist, you know, the spirit of the times in which he was doing a lot of his his teaching and education. So thank you. Um, in answer to a question you asked earlier about um, about how his work is being internalized or, or seen and how, do, how does it impact history and, and history in general, how we even approach it, I want to point to something that's happening in, in society right now. So in my culture, the African-American culture, um, they are leaving public schools in droves. And I would say, from my opinion as an educator, and as a historian, because I'm, I'm a history major by, um, by choice, <laughs> um, a lot of what's driving it is history, the, the teaching of history. There's a whole Afrocentric movement going on in the African-American community. So if you look at the recent research just this year, um, in terms of homeschooling, African-Americans um, have basically um, more than five times the the number of the homeschool school percentage in the United States. And there's a lot there. And what's there is, I think, why um, Howard Zinn became so popular is because people are hungry for things to help them understand why things are not adding up in history, why things are not connecting, certain dots are not connecting. They're not buying what's being sold. And so um, for a lot of African-American parents and more importantly, children, they're not buying what's being sold in their history books. They're not getting that our history begins in a cotton field, you know, that that's where we begin, you know, there just doesn't add up, you know, furthermore, doesn't add up that only black people are, have been slaves in this whole world. You know, that's it. It, it doesn't add up. And so, um, so I think that um, what I see um, and why I admire um, the, the bravery of these parents who are saying, nah, we're going to actually go and, and really go and, and create um, opportunities for our families and our kids to really know um, authentic um, history, to really go and do that research and really find resources, to go to the primary sources, but to also hearken to people like Lerone Bennett Jr., like John Hope Franklin, 
um, who are pioneers, who are historians, who most um, scholars who don't look like them don't even know anything about them. They don't know much about their work, you know, and they wrote about American history, but from um, an African-American perspective. So it was really cool to hear you um, give a nod, um, you know, to them as well in, in what you were sharing. But I think that what I think is going to be super important is something that I learned from my amazing history teachers who inspired me to go into the classroom. And that is to understand that everything that's being presented to you is coming to you from a biased place. It's coming to you no matter how much people strive to be equitable in their perspective. It's coming from their lens. It's coming from how they interpret. And you, as a scholar, must use your thinking cap. You must think. And you must ask yourself the hard questions. How does this sort with me? And if you don't agree with it, or if you don't quite see what it is, then go and see what you can find for yourself. And I'm Melissa, and I'm done speaking. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, listen, if you are a history major by choice, then you found the right club. So you should come back to History Club every week. We'd love to have you. Um, lots to dig into there, but let me let Jonathan and John speak first, because I've been talking a lot. I don't want to suck up all the oxygen, and then we can get more people up. I see there are more hands raised. I'm not ignoring people. We'll get people up. Um, but uh, maybe some general ideas or themes will emerge, and we can have a conversation amongst all of us. So uh, Jonathan and then John, why don't you guys go ahead, and then we'll get more people into the convo and respond in turn. Hi, thank you so much. Good, good to be back. Um, thanks for the shout out, Cyrus, and, and thanks for organizing this, Jason. And Thank you, namesake Jonathan. This is this is really really cool. Extremely interesting. I my copy of A People's History of the United States actually arrived in the mail this morning, so I haven't had time to read it yet. Um, wasn't familiar with the book, but I had a had a question when uh, Jason advertised this this edition of um, History Club because I remember when I was a, a high schooler in, in in the UK in the 1980s, I had an aunt who was kind of sort of radical left type who who gave me. A copy of a book called A People's History of England um, by A.L. Morton, which was actually written in the 1930s. It went through multiple editions. Um, and, you know, he was a pretty radical historian, you know, I mean, kind of going to Moscow in the 50s, you know, along with Eric Hobsbawm, Christopher Hill, people like that, um, and actually donated his personal library to a university in what was then communist East Germany. So, you know, you kind of get the picture. But I'm just wondering... Uh, whether Howard Zinn was influenced by, I mean, either specifically by 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 Morton in terms of his approach of history from the bottom up, um, really, you know, just kind of whether there was any any sort of influence at all on that, and uh, that that that's that's essentially my question. Thank you. I'm Jonathan Dunn speaking. Yeah, you you uh, sent me that book earlier today. Um, I will have to look into that. I don't know off the top of my head who influenced who. Um, I'm sure that they were sort of all both influenced by the same trends in social history um, and and probably came out of that same, you know, radical historian tradition. And by the way, again, radical is not a word I'm ascribing to them. That's a word they use to describe themselves. Um, and depending on where you sit on the political spectrum, you may think that's a badge of honor or you may think that that's a, a mark of shame. That's sort of up to you. But that's the word that they, they use to describe themselves. But in terms of who influenced who and how much and to what degree, I'm afraid I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head. One thing a good historian should always do is admit and recognize the limits of his own knowledge. And so there, I don't know the answer. 
I have very quickly skimmed through the bibliography, but I mean, literally, while you've been speaking this evening, I haven't had time to find any reference to Morton, but that doesn't mean anything. So. Cool. Why don't you stay up here for a sec? And uh, John and uh, Giannina, I hope I said that right, uh, would love to get you in, and then we can kind of have a conversation amongst us here. And then uh, there's a few more hands raised. I'll bring some more people up. Hey, I hope everyone's doing all right. This is John um, down here. Jason, a fantastic um, presentation. Really, really great. Um, it's really ironic because um, yesterday on one of my you know chat groups, I actually was recommending Howard Zinn's book. So I think it's just one of these things. That, that <laughs> That's you, amazing. It was meant you, to be. Well, you, you kind of hit on it. You, you know, it popped up in the 2000s. You know, it has this vibe during times of, you know, tension. It, it just, it, it does gives us, a certain clarity, and I, I, I do forget the um, last speaker's name. I think she expressed it in a, in a lot um, better way than I could, that this book does answer a lot of questions, you know, that a lot of people have that, hey, you know, it's not adding up. Um, but just kind of one history wonk question I wanted to ask you, Jason. You brought up um, one criticism that Zinn's book had gotten were his uh, use of sources. So would you able to um, elaborate a little more on that? Like what were the specific issues with his you know secondary sources and primary sources and if someone is really looking at american history whatever that even means i mean what sources are there what do we use and you know the last speaker did mention the whole you know african-american history now I and mean, that seems like a whole separate sources so what exactly i mean maybe that's not a quick question but what exactly were the the kind of historian wonky uh, critiques of you know people's history because you know it's it's a powerful book emotionally for sure and it does help connect some dots but in terms of uh, academic method i'm just curious um, in that regard and thank you for hosting the room yeah well um listen we have to contextualize the criticisms as well as the praise right because as mentioned zinn is part of a group of historians who are re who are reacting and sort of revolting against a prior generation of historians, right? So some of the folks in that prior generation of historians weren't necessarily too fond of being revolted against, as one could imagine. Um, and so there were there were reactions to both the book itself and and what it was trying to do. And then there were also quibbles with some of the things that were in the book. And um, Oscar Handlin is a very famous historian. Uh, he actually has one of my favorite quotes as a historian, which I'm going to butcher because I don't remember it off the top of my head. But he says something to the effect, Handlin says uh, something to the effect of, I sat down to write the history of immigrants in America, and then I realized that the immigrants were America. Something to that effect. It's always, always been one of my favorite quotes. But Handlin was a pretty serious critic of Zinn's book, and he was critical of its accuracy as well as its sort of um, casual omissions of some things. Um, so I can read you some of that criticism, uh, and you can see what you think of it. So here is Oscar Handlin uh, criticizing Howard Zinn's book in 1980 when it came out. These are Handlin's words, not mine. <clears throat> This book pays only casual regard to factual accuracy. It is simply not true that what Columbus did to the Arawaks of the Bahamas, Cortes did to the Aztecs of Mexico, Pizarro to the Incas of Peru, and the English settlers of Virginia and Massachusetts to the Poetans and the Pequots. It is simply not true that the farmers of the Chesapeake colonies in the 17th and early 18th centuries 
avidly desired the importation of black slaves or that the gap between rich and poor widened in the 18th century colonies. Zinn gulps down as literally true the proven hoax of Polly Baker and the improbable plow jogger, and he repeats uncritically the old charge that President Lincoln altered his views to suit his audience. The Geneva Assembly of 1954 did not agree on elections in a unified Vietnam. That was simply the hope expressed by the British chairman when the parties concerned could not agree. The United States did not back Batista in 1959. It had ended aid to Cuba and washed its hands of him well before them. Tet was not evidence of the unpopularity of the Saigon government, but a resounding rejection of the northern invaders. So basically, historians went through the book and some of them said, actually, this stuff isn't that accurate. Now, those historians had their own motives, which need to be contextualized, and there's other scholarship since 1980 that has gone back and looked at all of these things. So we have to take this scholarship as sort of being a historical document in of itself, right? It comes from a particular time and place. But the point is simply to say that when the book came out, it was not as if it was universally embraced by historians or the broader public. Oh, thank you very much. And there's other critiques of Zinn, but there's also praise for Zinn by historians. So there's historians who wrote in 1980 and 1981 that this book was an incredibly valuable contribution to the scholarship and that they were going to use it in their classrooms. So like any scholarly endeavor, when you put out a book, it's going to get criticized, it's going to get praised, it's going to get everything in between. Um, and I expect when I publish my book later this year, it will get its fair share of criticism. It might also get some praise and Maybe in 30 years, I'll be lucky enough that it'll have sold a few million copies like Zinn's book has. Um, but Giannina, would love to get you into the conversation and hear your thoughts. Oh, thank you, Jason. Um, I was so happy to see this title in my hallway. Um, right. because... Well, you are welcome in History Club anytime <laughs> if this excited you. Yes, yes, it actually did. Um, when I was 18, my father made me read this book. <laughs> It was required reading. That was 23 years ago. Um, you know, I, I come from an education space. Uh, I was a ninth grade teacher. I'm now in my third year of law school. And I, I'll say this. I'm a researcher at heart. And one thing I just want to address quickly um, about, you know, the critics. You know, in academia, you're always going to have critics. That's essentially what you are as an academic. You know, you're a critic. Um, and I think that sometimes, you know, my, my only issue that I have is, you know, the onslaught of people like Trump saying, who is this person and why are we, you know, why are we to feel bad about our history and things like that? And, and the point is, for me, it's like, you know, I have people in my family, my own brother, who's a Trump supporter. You know, I don't like the divide. You know, I think it's important that we become more moderate. You know, I think that, you know, in the next couple of decades, we'll have more of a rise of a third party that is more moderate. But my issue is with the onslaught against education, you know. Um, Howard Zinn uh, <laughs> had about... 50 pages of references, you know, at the end of this book, that was eight, 900 pages, right? 
Um, it could have been more than that, maybe a hundred. I don't know. Um, but you know, if we if we actually cared to address any of these concerns, we could go through those references ourselves. The problem is, unfortunately, in our society, you know, we're we're not we're 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 not too keen on on doing the work, you know. Um, and so I I would just say for anybody that you know is listening to this, please read this book. You know, even even if you just read it as a a narrative kind of story, you're gonna learn a lot. I mean, I remember reading the part about Lincoln where he talked about the emancipation, and then when he went back to the Democrats, which then were more like Republicans, and talked about the fact that, you know, he didn't really agree that all these Black people were equal, but this is what we needed to do, you know? And, um, you know, it just gives you a very, uh, it gives you a very, um, I don't know what the word is, I'm getting stuck on the word, but just multifaceted, I guess, um, view of how politics worked and the things, I mean, even at the beginning of this book, when you talk about the pilgrims digging up their, their spouses and their children, you know, to, to, because they were starving and, and, and eating their, eating their flesh, you know, these horrific things that, that we went through as Americans. I think every American should have to read this book. Like I did. <laughs> I had to read this book. It was assigned, you know, and I, I think we, you know, if my, I wish that we had a, a love of reading that, that my father instilled in me that love of, of knowledge and seeking it out. I, Jason, I look forward to your book. And um, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate you being here. And you are welcome back in History Club anytime. Um, I'm glad you brought up Trump because, I mean, listen, Trump clearly has never read Howard Zinn. He probably doesn't know Howard Zinn from, you know, a hole in the wall. Um, but you know, with with Trump, like everything is personal. So when Trump was elected, the Zinn Education Project put out a whole thing on their website about how Trump was terrible and the worst thing for America and the worst thing for democracy, as you would expect being a progressive social justice organization. So, of course, they were in Trump's crosshairs and you know, what he does when people criticize him is he goes after them and he uses them as a punching bag. So I don't give much credence to what Trump said about Howard Zinn, and I don't give much credence to Trump's 1776 commission, which of course didn't go anywhere because he lost the election shortly after he announced that thing. Uh, I think the more interesting thing, which you're talking about, uh, Giannina, and I hope I'm saying that right, is that, you know, these, these books, these names, they become embedded as part of the culture wars when 90% of the time people have not even read the books or don't even know who the people are, right? And this also happened with the 1619 Project. It became this political football that got kicked back and forth between the political parties and activists on both sides where, you know, and we actually did an event about this on Clubhouse and it turned out that like barely anyone had actually read the project. So yes, I totally agree with you, like reads in, look at the sources, evaluate the argument from a critical perspective, and use it as a way to further explore and expand your own mind about what the past um, is and how the past has shaped where we are today. And don't get distracted by the talking points on television or the political punditry, which is largely just theater and is used as a way to rile up people's emotions on one side or the other 
and paint one side as villain and the other side as hero. Amen. <laughs> um, so that's my two cents about Trump and his reaction to Zinn. But let's get my friend Taylor into the conversation because she is also an educator and I would love to hear from her. Taylor, welcome to the stage. Thank you so much, Jason. Um, I really appreciated your um, background of Howard Zinn. That was very interesting. Um, and kind of to go off what you guys had been saying just, just earlier about how it's um, appealing to people's emotions when you're speaking or when you're hearing some of these things that um, our former president may have said. Um, but one thing I think is so important, especially in the context of history education, is that it's it's told through so many perspectives. And all of all of those perspectives are interesting and have input. And I think that what's really important for us um, educators is to take the time to teach students that all historians and all storytellers have a bias. And we need to really focus on teaching critical thinkers. Um, it needs to be a priority in education, um, especially because as they become adults and as there's more sensationalism in our media um, it's so important for our um, next wave of, of adults who are coming through our school systems to have those skills to be able to determine that, hey, this is information, but this is information that's being told from a bias. And what can I take from that? How can I be a critical thinker? Um, and that's just kind of my two cents on the idea. And I really appreciate your input um, and your information on Howard Zinn. This is Taylor, and I'm done speaking. Thanks, Taylor. You know, I. I agree with you, but I, I would maybe quibble with the word bias. I think the word I would use would be point of view. And um, point of view and bias are not always the same thing. Zinn had a point of view. He was a radical revolutionary. He believed that the system could not be reformed in its current state. It had to be blown apart. And so he supported the civil rights revolution. He supported revolution in Vietnam. He supported revolution in China, and some of those revolutions were more, you know, uh, righteous and just than others. The revolution in China was brutal and deadly and cost millions of people's lives. So I would argue Zinn was wrong about that one. Uh, but that was his point of view, and he was not shy about that. Uh, and there are people today who share that point of view and are not shy about that and believe that the system cannot be reformed without radical revolution. Um, I think where we get into trouble is when people maybe try to obscure or hide their point of view and present themselves as something when they're really something else. But Zinn didn't do that. He was very open throughout his life about where he stood. And, you know, folks like Trump, conservatives, conservative historians, conservative politicians, they saw Zinn as a threat for that very reason, right? He wanted to explode systems that were working very well for certain people. Um, so I think that's where, in my personal opinion, that's where we need to teach students on how to think and decipher these things. I don't know how that strikes you. No, I agree. Um, yeah, I, I think that you're right with point of view. That makes total sense that everybody has their own different point of view and that may be a different, different from bias, but, um, still making sure that individuals are aware that everybody's coming from their own perspective and that's completely their own and you know their own place where they're coming from and making sure that they're able to synthesize that information like how jonathan had said earlier jonathan number one sorry jonathan number two um <laughs> he had said earlier how he was able to present 
um, Zinn's work alongside the more conservative work that he had and allowing his students to look at those two pieces of information side by side and determine what they thought, come up with their own thoughts about those two differing points of view. Yeah, and you know, there's one thing about Zinn I forgot, and this is something that I can never forgive Zinn for, no matter how much I will tell people to read his book. So Zinn was born in New York City. He goes to NYU, he goes to Columbia. He moves to Atlanta to teach at Spelman, then he moves to Boston, and he lives in Boston for the rest of his life, teaching at, North, uh, at Boston University. So Matt Damon's mother talks about the fact that, you know, the Damons and the Zins used to hang out all the time, and they used to go to Red Sox games. And Zinn was an avid Red Sox fan. And for me, as a New Yorker, for a New Yorker to move to Boston and become a Red Sox fan, that is an act of treachery, which I can never forgive. So anyway, one more factoid about Zinn for consideration. We got a lot of hands going up. Let's get Heather and Uchenna and Olivia into the convo, and then we'll bring more people up. Keep your hand up. I see you. We'll get you on stage in a second. But Heather, we'd love to hear from you. Hi, Jason. Thank you so much for holding this room. Um, this is Heather speaking. I am an MBA and MPA student at Presidio Graduate School. I specifically research de-radicalization, which gets into disinformation. So I could not agree with Taylor Moore about critical thinking and teaching that. And I have personal experience in this. And I hopped up on stage. I was debating it earlier, but then, Jason, you brought up the word radical. And um, I felt like I should share a little bit about my personal history with the people's history of the United States um, and Howard Zinn's work. So <laughs> this book was actually used in the process of my radicalization, which happened 15 years ago. I was in an extremist right wing end times prepping cult for four years um, that I left 10 years ago, over 10 years ago. And the way in which it was used for radicalization, thanks for the clapping, everyone. Yeah, that's <laughs> why I researched de-radicalization. De um, uh, the way that it was used in my radicalization, and this book was recommended to me in 2006 by a radical Christian primitivist. Um, and it was used as a way of saying, see, you can't trust the government. So it's ironic because what Howard Zinn is speaking or trying to illuminate in his work is that, you know, basically social justice issues, liberal ideas, what we would consider liberal ideas. But um, I've seen many people today use some of his concepts in like the anti-vax movement, for example, um, people who may not have been conservative um, leaning prior to uh, Trump, um, but then felt like Trump uh, protected their belief system in uh, the anti-vax movement and then therefore became more um, conservative through that process. So I also want to say that this book became a pro uh, part of my process of de-radicalization. And eventually it was what helped me use critical thinking because the book introduced me to critical thinking in a in a way that was manipulated but then it was something that I always referred back to and was able to look back and I was able to question the history as my church uh, group was presenting it to me so history as as a disinformation based history I was able to question that 
using this book as a reference point um, in my own personal life. And there's something in de-radicalization research that talks about uh, core need and um, other things in which, like basically tools that are used to radicalize people are usually the same kinds of tools that can be used to de-radicalize people. So this book has actually been a prime example of that in my own personal life. And now I, you know, research de-radicalization. I work in social, social justice movements. Um, but I, I'm just so grateful for this room because this book has been a huge part of my life. Um, so, or, you know, the people's history of the United States. I know that you, you were speaking on Howard Zinn specifically, but yeah, so I wanted to share that perspective and that story. And I just wanted to say thank you. And I'm done speaking. Wow. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. that Can is- I just share really quickly? I love, that's the power of history that when I'm teaching it, I forget that there, I don't forget, but it's not always directly front and center that what we're talking about, what we're thinking can have profound real impact on real people in the present not just abstract political conversations centered around, you know, debates from the past. So thank you for making what, you know, putting something in a complicated perspective that these have real impact, ideas have real impact on real lives. Yeah, I mean, it's such an amazing story. Thank you for sharing. And of course, again, I want to restate, you know, Zinn himself considered himself a radical. He wanted to radicalize people. That was part of his his MO as a scholar, as an activist, as a teacher. So, you know, when we think about radicalization, radicalization takes a lot of different forms and can come in a lot of different perspectives. It's interesting to hear about his work being used as a mode of de-radicalization when in fact, at its essence, it was a radical piece of history. (laughs) It's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And it just goes to show you too that you can distort and bend history any way you want to serve your objectives, which is, you know, that could be a whole other discussion on in a history club someday. But uh, let's get more folks into the convo. Um, my buddy, Uchenna, who is a huge supporter of History Club, one of my favorite people on Clubhouse, would love to hear your thoughts. And then we'll get Olivia. And then there's seven more hands raised. I see you all. We will get you up on stage here in a moment. Oh, thank you so much, Jason. Um, first and foremost, thank you all for being here in this group today. Uh, Jason, thank you for hosting us. Um, uh, I think this is a really great conversation to have in terms of how we perceive history and how we accept history and understand it. So uh, my introduction to Howard Zinn was, um, so I grew up in the Bay Area. I went to public schools for the first two years and I went to a prestigious private school for the second two years. Um, But during those second two years was when I studied Uh, California history as you're supposed to give it to students through the standard issue books in tandem with Howard Zinn's book. And so uh, one of the most incredible things that I was able to understand was that this thirst for actually desiring to understand how things have occurred in the past, being a historian in general, um, understanding that you have to dig really deep to see who's writing the history that you're reading uh, is largely because of Howard Zinn. And so when we would study um, the Civil War from the California texts, it read as it such, but then we would go to the Howard Zinn text and then learn and realize that, uh, you know, things like civil, the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation was mostly done in a sense of trying to unify the country, not necessarily in a sense of trying to free slaves 
as it was given to us in the California state books. And so um, uh, some folks in, in on the stage have already kind of stated this, but critical thinking, I think, is something that you can actually learn from Howard Zinn. You don't have to fully subscribe to some of the things that he, he came up with, because I do think, as you said, Jason, some of the things that he, he aligned himself with kind of were a little bit questionable. But at the same time, I think that Howard Zinn and his, uh, his book is a great introduction into actually trying to understand the full history of the United States um, and not from how you're just given and told how it's supposed to be, but how it's given from a different perspective and, and, and how these perspectives should be valued. So um, again, thank you so much for hosting this space. I hope that this is an introduction to everyone to kind of be critical thinkers. I think that we, as you know, the past five, seven years have been really stressful if you're a critical thinker in the policy space. Um, but I, I really do uh, co-sign this book and I co-sign this group um, as a great step for you to kind of dive deep into the history of the United States, uh, take different perspectives, and then uh, it's it, it, and it's a really good read, to be honest. It's, it's a great read. You'll read about Ronald Reagan uh, and, 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 and how we we paint such a great picture of him in our state sanctioned books, but you'll see the true person that Ronald Reagan was as my former governor. So um, thank you again, Jason. And I hope you guys read the book. Uh, my name is Uchen and I'm done speaking. Thank you, my friend, for being here and for supporting the club. I appreciate it. And I appreciated your enthusiasm on Twitter when uh, <laughs> we announced this subject. I was like, yes, all right. We got some people interested. I'm excited for that. Um, Olivia would love to have you weigh in. And I, I rotated a few people off the stage um, and brought up a few new folks. And then there's a few more folks with their hand raised. I see you and we will get you up here uh, in a little bit if you just stay patient. Um, also, just a quick room reset that uh, this is the History Club. We do this every Thursday night, uh, 10 o'clock Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific or wherever you are in the country uh, or in the world. So uh, please do follow the club or follow me if you want to come back for future conversations. And uh, our room tonight is uh, done in collaboration with the Educate Conference happening here on Clubhouse over the span of the next three days with 170-something sessions all about education. So um, check out Jonathan and Cyrus's profiles to learn more about that. But uh, Olivia, would love to get you into the combo. Oh, hey, Jason. Um, can you hear me okay? You sound great. Okay, perfect. Um, I'm sitting next to my copy of uh, Howard Zinn's uh, People's History of the United States that uh, I have from 11th grade. Uh, it was a very accelerated history class. Um, and I know it's from 11th grade because I happened to write 11th grade on the side of the book, um, <laughs> including my name in case someone lost it. Um, and, and I guess I'm curious, you know, how mainstream, um, the, the one question I had, you know, for everyone to think about is, you know, how mainstream um, teachings in is. Um, I know I had an accelerated history class, but I wonder if, you know, John, um, the comment Jonathan made at the beginning was interesting about how, uh, uh, you know, getting a talking to when he introduced some of it um, into his class. And, you know, just kind of curious if people have come across those uh, experiences, because I get the sense in reporting about how history is taught in America that sometimes um, there can be uh, challenges to, you know, even getting certain points of view into the conversation um, in classrooms. Um, but um, I guess my my comment is kind of a wide angle lens um, that uh, Jason um, had touched on really well in in his um, 
in the points he was making, but it, it seems like just the teaching of history has always been political. It's just something I, I keep kind of coming back to. And I love talking to historians who have been studying all the different uh, culture wars uh, that have come up like whenever we've been in, you know, a time of war, or other disturbances to the status quo, or, you know, in the wake of wars, you, there, there seems to be this, well, wait, how are we teaching history? And uh, could that be the problem? You know, are our children learning what they should be learning to love America? And, you know, you, you just, you keep seeing this in, whether it's 1918 and concerns that children of German immigrants will grow up loyal to Germany or in the depression with business leaders picking at textbooks, uh, you know, and calling them anti-capitalist. And in the late 40s, worries in California that history textbooks portray, well, they, you know, or are these textbooks portraying communist society too favorably? Are our students going to fall for um, this? And, you know, I think, and I, I loved kind of reading about the counter arguments that, well, students are going to fall for propaganda more easily if they're not armed with a balanced view of U.S. and world history. So um, I think it's just always really interesting to keep in mind, you know, um, and, and, you know, Jason had made this point earlier, you know, thinking about the purpose of teaching history. And um, it's really interesting to talk to historians who teach at the college level um, and, you know, getting kids uh, at a place where they have come from, they, they can kind of get a sense of what, what kids know going into it and you kind of know what's drilled into you, right? Like what you might have to learn for tests. And is that the kind of, you know, history that uh, is preparing us to understand uh, what's going on in America today? Um, and it seemed like Zinn, you know, had popularized, um, at least started a conversation about a lot of those those issues. Um, and I've, I've always loved the points historians have made that, you know, uh, kids just don't want to be misled. Um, they, they hate going to college and realizing that they haven't learned the full story on something. So gives us a lot to think about, about how we teach her growing up. Um, I'm Olivia and I'm, I'm done speaking. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's so interesting about all this is, well, there's a lot of things that are interesting about it, but but one thing that's that always really interests me about this is that like I think I think to be a good historian, you not only have to know what happened, but you have to know why it happened and how it happened. And we have to apply that onto history itself, right? The study of history itself, not just the information about the past. And so what I mean by that is like to really grapple with Zinn effectively, we not only have to read Zinn, but we also have to understand how Zinn became Zinn, right? How the person Zinn became this sort of patron saint of social justice Zinn, how the scholar Zinn became the face of a whole wing of high school and college education in the United States Zinn. And that process doesn't just happen. There are actors within that process who have agendas and those agendas make that happen. And some of those agendas are from Hollywood and some of them are from electoral politics during the early 2000s and the 
fight against the Iraq war and against George W. Bush. Some of them are from inside academia and some of them are from other forces. And you may completely agree with all of those agendas, but you still have to know what they are and that they exist. And so I think that is what actually separates like, you know, the real historians from the history enthusiasts or the hobbyists, right? Is getting to those questions. And I think in each moment, Olivia, that you reference, it's not just the what was being debated, but why and how and what were the agendas that were driving it. And that, I think, is where things start to get really, really fascinating. And I think that's true with Zinn. I mean, it's really fascinating, not only is People's History of the United States a good book that's worth reading, it's also really fascinating to think about how it becomes the thing that it is today, 40 years after it was published. At least, that's what fascinates me about it. Um, let's get Carmen and Kevin into the conversation. Carmen, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for bringing it up. I really appreciate it. Actually, the, I, I'd like to share an anecdote that I think, um, based on what you just said and what Olivia just said, uh, is actually perfectly timed right now. I um, I grew up half in Boston and half in Florida, uh, and uh, I actually uh, I actually knew Howard Zinn uh, a bit. And the way that that worked out is I, I went to I went to high school in Florida, and I never I hadn't heard of Howard Zinn through high school. Um, we, I, he wasn't assigned reading for me. And then I actually went to I went to school to college late, and in between there, in between high school and college, I I happened upon um, Howard Zinn, Noam Chomsky, and these uh, you know other other good reads, and read People's History of the United States. And then I went to college at, at BU, and when I started a, a group, a political group, a student political group, um, you know this was the '90s, right? Uh, this was just um, um, actually funny enough, right around when Goodwill Hunting came out. And uh, um, Howard Zinn was not teaching. He was a professor emeritus. But I, I called him. I said, I want you to be the faculty advisor because he could still do that for this political group. And, and he agreed, which was probably one of the greatest moments of my life at that time. Um, and then when I, after I met with him and he agreed and he signed the papers, I literally ran around college, I ran around the campus and I grabbed anybody who I might even know slightly. Like, you wouldn't believe who my faculty advisor is. And they'd, be, they'd be like, who? Howard Zinn. And they were like, who? You know, which was really disappointing to me. But then finally, I just started to say, because, um, you know, as you mentioned, they were old family friends. I was given to understand also that Howard Zinn was uh, Matt Damon's godfather. So that's what I started saying. I, I started to say, Matt Damon's godfather. And they would be like, oh, my God, that's so incredible, which, of course, just shows, you know, where everybody's priorities are and how popular and, and uh, famous um, uh, Matt Damon was. But I thought I would share that that anecdote. Um, uh, so thank you very much for, for letting me up. Yeah, I love it. Thank you. And listen, Zinn, like I said, he was a revolutionary. He was a Marxist. He had communist sympathies. He, he, you know, railed against the bourgeoisie, but he was bourgeoisie. He had a freaking house on Cape Cod where he went oystering and he was friends with Matt Damon's family. So again, you know, listen, he was a human being. He, 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 he spoke in a lot of different ways. He lived in a lot of different contexts. And, you know, when we think about sort of the patron saint of Zinn and what he's become, we oftentimes lose sight of the human being. Um, but I love that story, Carmen. And, uh, and I, I, like I said, I can never forgive Zinn for being born a New Yorker and becoming a Red Sox fan. God, <laughs> what was he thinking? Kevin, would love to hear from you. Uh, sure. Can you guys hear me okay? You sound great. 
Okay, great. Just checking. The technical aspect is uh, taken care of. Now, that being said, uh, I want to thank you, Jason, for um, for hosting this room. It's it's actually quite interesting because uh, this thing came up my iPhone on uh, my iPhone this uh, this hat this evening. I'm like, you know. I know that book. So you may want to listen to this thing. It might be actually quite, quite interesting. And I honestly looked in the last hour. I'm like, oh, my God, this is really great. But So thank you for doing this. But um, that being said, I want to know my own personal story with Howard Zinn just because um, I am very familiar with the guy. Um, like you said, like the people have been saying earlier, um, he was somebody who I – didn't hear of until college and all the educators in the room that were speaking previously to something about the political uh, agendas of the United States. But um, the story is I also grew up in New York City, as you can tell by my accent. Um, yes, a big Yankees fan, and I, I also cannot forgive the guy for, for moving to Boston and become a Red Sox fan, but that's a different issue. I know, right? Um, we're never going to get over this, Kevin. We're never going to get over this. Well, you know what, hey. I mean, as named New Yorkers, we shouldn't, but that's a different issue. Um, but the story is, before I get to try to ask myself, this is why I became a history major is because I, I tend to like stories. I tend to like telling stories. Um, but the story is, I heard this guy in college, it's my, quite honestly, my very first week of college that my, uh, at the time, college professor She's no longer there. At Hunter College in New York City, um, recommended the book to me. Um, and that was when I bought it off Barnes Noble about a week later and started to read it. And quite honestly, it was everything, as no exaggeration, everything that my high school and middle school history textbooks did not tell me. And for the first time ever, I was hearing something that I honestly just didn't really hear for the first 12 years of my life. I'm like, oh my God. Um, it was I, quite honestly the very first time I heard about a perspective of the country that, let's say, wasn't so rosy. And as somebody who went to private school for the first 12 years of my life and truly heard about how it was the greatest country in the world and this, that, the other, how it was so powerful and big and rich, like, oh my God. This is not what I'm hearing right now. So um, that was what first got me into history, and that's part of the reason why I majored in it. Was, it was so riveting and so like different from what I normally heard. Like I gotta, I gotta really dig into this and really find out much more of it. Um, I did not do U.S. history at the time, and I took both classes, so I had a whole overview of the entire country's history. But I did European, uh, and I specialized in German history. So his determined speaking world, but uh, that was for all the reasons. But the point is, um, his book was the very first time I heard something different about the country, and I also mind the political science for that reason, also just because of what he what he was telling me. Oh my God, it's not great. Um, but yeah, that, that's my story with him, and um, I will eventually, after I try and get through all five hundred all the books that I have on my shelf, as all historians tend to know, we have a lot of books. Um, we'll eventually take it out and read it again. Um, and see if if this is still quite timely. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it will be from what I've from what I've heard the last hour. But um, that's my story with him, and that's how uh, I got acquainted with him. Um, and this is Kevin. I'm done speaking. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate you being here, and come back to History Club anytime. You are you are welcome. And uh, God, I love your accent. I could listen to that all day. It reminds me of home. Um, so thank you for 
for speaking and, and sharing. Um, there's a lot of hands still up. I do, I should have said this at the outset, but um, we typically don't go past midnight here on the East Coast because, well, that's just a little bit late for me and my old age. I can't really stay up past midnight and be a functioning person anymore. So um, we'll try to get through as many hands as possible and then we'll try to wrap it up as, as close to midnight. But uh, we do this every week, same bat time, same bat channel. So if you're liking this conversation, please do come back, follow me, follow the club. You can also support the club if you're able to. Um, that's always appreciated. And there are three days of educational content on Clubhouse all weekend. Check out Jonathan and Cyrus's profiles for that information. So if we don't get you in this time, you can uh, we'll get you into a future club or you can participate in some of the other awesome rooms that are happening around the app. But uh, let's get William and Ed into the convo. William, thanks for being patient. We'd love to hear from you. Hi, Jason. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Uh, because of the time, I'll be really quick with my response or my questions. Number one, uh, I currently live in the San Francisco Bay Area, which I love, uh, but I am a product of the Detroit public school system. And uh, my mother, who was actually a teacher uh, in the public school system, and this is where I first became acquainted with this book. And one of the things that my mother always had me do um, as part of my own education is whatever I learned at school, my mother would always bring home some book at least once a week that I was required to read. And then I had to write a report. This was outside of school. And she did this for years. And this was this book was one of the books that as a kid I had to write a book report on and then present it to my mother for a grade. And I wanted to ask, is there a way that we can get this book into the hands of young people? I just feel that there's a very powerful lesson here. And I just wondered, is there some way, not only can we get it to the hands of young people, but then create a discussion group around it? That's the first thing. And then the second thing is, I'm sure you looked at my profile and you see I'm a cryptocurrency hedge fund manager. So you know, man, I got to ask you about your coin. And how can I support you and your coin? But maybe give us some reasoning behind why you decided to create a cryptocurrency coin and, you know, the process behind it and what you hope to accomplish. This is William, and thank you very much for allowing me to speak. <laughs> Amazing. Um, well, uh, I'll answer the second question really quickly first because, um, you know, we're obviously want to talk about Zinn here tonight, but... Um, you and I, William, should talk offline because I'd actually like to learn from you. Uh, but basically, my vision for my cryptocurrency is the following. Um, history funding is in crisis at the moment. The 20th century models of funding history institutions and history scholarship are falling apart. And so my idea was, can we use cryptocurrencies as a new mechanism to fund public history work. And so I've teamed up with a company called Rally, um, which is a startup in Silicon Valley that makes cryptocurrencies for creators. And I'm one of the first dozen or so people to launch my own creator coin, a cryptocurrency called Jason Coin. And all the money that I raise or generate through my crypto economy I am going to parlay into fellowships and grants to public historians paid in crypto. 
So the idea is to build a new economy and a new funding model to support public history work because the other funding models are not working. So more to say on that in the weeks ahead. I've got a blog post I'm writing about it. I'm going to do a room about it, but that's the, that's the basics of it. And I can, would love to chat with you offline about more about how to do that and get your take on all that. In terms of Zen, so there's actually a huge apparatus that is promoting and getting Zen into the classrooms. It's called the Zen Education Project. Um, they've reached 100,000 teachers. And those teachers are assigning Zinn's books, they're assigning his readings, they're assigning other related works. So there actually is a huge apparatus around Zinn getting him into the hands of young people. I don't know when you came into the room, but I'm actually more interested in the other 499 historians who were part of that radical caucus that met in 1969. I think we should take a page from Zinn himself, where Zinn would say, don't just look at the one person in front of the line. Look at all the people behind and ask, how did they contribute? And so I'm more interested, frankly, in getting the other 499 historians who were part of that same movement into the hands of the next generation and not having it be solely about one person. I think there's enough right now getting Zinn into the hands of readers across the country. I'd like to see other historians uh, both from that period and from other periods, get into the hands of other historians. And maybe there's ways through History Club or through the cryptocurrency that that can happen. So that's Jason, my two cents. I'll add this. I would, my contact information is in my profile. I actually have, a, a, I think it's a brilliant idea on how you can market and distribute your coin. I really do. So it's there. Reach out to me if you like, um, and we can discuss it. Thank you. Love to. I just followed you and I will follow up with you after uh, tonight. So, yeah, appreciate it. Um, Ed, thanks for being patient and uh, appreciate all you've done to make this Educate conference happen. I see you've got the, the logo. So, uh, would love to get you into the convo. Jason, thank you for inviting me to the stage. Um, been a lifelong uh, fan of history, uh, even as a, as a kid. Um, Currently, I'm a school administrator in New York City, but prior to that, um, I spent a number of years teaching um, social studies and history. Um, I actually started my my education career as an international teacher. Um, I was uh, teaching uh, history and social studies in Vietnam for a few several years. Um, a while ago and I used Howard Zen in the classroom there and, and I spent time teaching in Hanoi uh, and Ho Chi Minh City, um, Vietnam. And uh, the students that I taught were fascinated um, with Howard Zen, uh, the Vietnamese students. And, um, you know, it, it, I my, my question for you, I guess, is, um, you know, I, I recently finished watching the um, HBO Max documentary "Exterminate All the Brutes" uh, by Ryle Peck, and I'm just wondering how you, what your take on that is, and that documentary is, or the book, if you haven't had a chance to watch the docu series yet, and how it relates to Howard Zinn. Thank you, and I'm done talking. 
Um, I'm going to uh, plead ignorance here. I'm not familiar with it, so I really don't have uh, anything that I can add. I don't know if Jonathan or Cyrus is familiar with it or Olivia, um, so I can't comment meaningfully. I could make something up, but that's not what we do here in History Club. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously, Zin, Zin was a huge critic of the Vietnam War. It's where he came to sort of national prominence. He was involved with the civil rights movement very actively, you know, with the SNCC and others. Uh, but it was really in his his anti-Vietnam stance that sort of propelled him first into the national spotlight, you know, leading leading marches, uh, debating people who were uh, in favor of the war, writing manifestos about why the U.S. should pull out of the war. And as I mentioned earlier, he actually, his prescription for ending the war was for there to be a revolution in Vietnam, and he was not shy about saying that um, communism could very well, in fact, be the answer for Vietnam. Um, so, you know, he obviously was deeply involved with that issue and his anti-war activism really did push him into the public spotlight in ways that, you know, other historians at the time uh, were not. Uh, but, uh, that you know, that, that's about as much as I could say at the moment. That's fine. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and Barbara, love your picture <laughs> it's, uh, um, and love to get you into the conversation as well. And then I think, Barbara, you may be the last one because it is getting towards midnight here on the East Coast. And, and I, as people know, who come to History Club every week, I, I tend to turn into a, a non-functioning adult after midnight. So uh, we may have to uh, wind this down to a close after you offer your comments. So please Yeah, terrific. Ahead. And I, I hope I end here on a actually a very poignant note that I think you'll all uh, very much appreciate. Ironically, my relationship to Howard uh, going back to 1969, where he was my professor at Boston University. That was my first, and you can imagine that time. Um, and thank you so much for taking me to the stage. And I'm fascinated about your discussion on the crisis of history and learning. And I really appreciate that you mentioned the Zinn Education Project. Um, fast forward many, many years later, I was working with none other than Woody Harrelson. And uh, I asked Woody, you know, everybody thinks you're a hero. Who's your hero? He said, Howard Zinn. I had this tremendous opportunity and I brought Howard and Woody together, if you can imagine, to discuss the Vietnam War and theories behind both of their philosophies, which I think is still on YouTube for uh, it was done for free speech TV. But he was such a humanitarian aside from all of his, as we know, intellectual prowess. And he had such a compassion for everyone that uh, I saw him meet when we sat down to do this roundtable discussion. And he was such an incredible listener, a beautiful listener besides a teacher. That's all I want to say. And I was very lucky to interview him about the beginnings of his life at the Brooklyn Navy Yard as a kid. So that's all did I you ask him? Say. Did you ask him why he became a Red Sox fan? I still can't get past that. <laughs> Even though I know a lot about baseball, I didn't go there. And he and Roz were <laughs> And what a beautiful couple they were. I mean, an extraordinary couple to spend time with. Thank you Great. for having me to the stage, and thank you for this discussion. Well, thank you for that reflection and that, uh, you know, it's so interesting. People who knew Zinn just have such these heartwarming reflections of him as a person, let alone his scholarship, his activism. 
you know, his role in history education. Just as a person, he's genuinely described as just compassionate, warm, funny, friendly. And I think that also factors a little bit into the Zinn legacy, right? It's not just him as a scholar, it's him as a individual. And I think there's a lot of people who've wanted to cherish his memory, including Matt Damon and his family. And, and that has led to his sort of you know, introduction and elevation within Hollywood circles. Again, a privilege that not many historians and academics um, tend to get. So um, there's a lot of things that work with the legacy of Zinn. And he's a complicated character, an interesting character, and, and he's had a, a big impact on how we think about history education uh, in this country. Uh, Jonathan and Cyrus, I've purposely left you up here on the stage um, to close us out. Um, would love to get your thoughts on everything that we've covered in this two hours and, and kind of spin it forward, I guess, um, sort of, you know, history education and education more broadly. Like, you know, where do we go from here? Well, thank you, Jason. Um, and thank you for giving us this time up here and promoting uh, our event. And for those of you who don't know about it yet, uh, just go to our profiles, educate.world. We're running uh, three days of nonstop education conference sessions on this app. So I'll just close uh, with my comment on Zen. And I loved everybody's perspective. But for me, it was uh, more about a permission of perspective that he gave me. Um, I wouldn't call myself a Marxist, and I wouldn't say that I agreed with all of his viewpoints. But it was the first time that I got a window into such a different uh, perspective on U.S. history that kind of allowed me and gave me that permission to apply that perspective elsewhere. And I think that's where the, the real value is, is because it, it, it opens your eyes to the fact that what you're taught isn't necessarily the truth. And you can read something from a different perspective. And it's okay if you don't agree with every aspect of it, because it's a fact that it's okay to look at the multiple perspectives and come to your own conclusion from it. And um, that's what I love the most. That's why I used it in my classroom. Um, that's why I still treasure the book. And I'll pass it over to Cyrus. To me, I guess, other than my just, you know, serendipitous discovery that we share a birthday, it's that we have a share the same or sort of, to me, what illustrated in my teaching is that I tell my students, I don't teach the past, I teach the present, just with arguments, you know, our present arguments using past content to really dispute what we're talking about in the moment. And that sort of, and the, as a social historian, I guess, which I see more as fashion, art, and music than social movements, but obviously they're blended together. What it sort of had me thinking was that he's kind of at this sort of overlapping nexus where you typically, your most of your teachers are going to be, you know, more progressive or left. Students are going to be more receptive, obviously, and naturally, you know, liberal or open to things. Parents, I would say either agnostic or run the gamut. School boards and, you know, the public, you know, perception of what we teach more conservative. And that's overly simplistic. But I think with all of those pressures coming in from all different sides, he's used and performs an ability to sort of you know, either be the bogeyman or the savior, but no matter what the center point of this discussion, although, as I said earlier, I still do have a few issues with taking analysis and elevating it to, you know, primary source. But I do want to say, Jason, thank you again. As I say, I love your conversation. Those of you that don't, this is a great way to have an early, wonderful evening, early for me. Uh, not for those on the East Coast. Thank you so much for uh, 
joining and supporting, as Janet, Jonathan said, it's educate.com. And I said a shout out Dot to world, folks sorry. down below. And I'm super excited to have um, folks come and join our sessions. And I have a history teachers organization that's sort of launching tomorrow as well. And we would love to have everyone there to make things happen. And Jason, thank you so much for what you do and for the amazing way you can host and navigate and communicate in ways that I wish I could. You're, you're a master at this, Jason. You were built for these kinds of conversations. Well, that's very kind of you guys to say. Um, I've spent my whole career trying to um, you know, engage public audience in history, and, and uh, Clubhouse has given me a new platform to do that, which has been a lot of fun. So if you want to help make these conversations possible, you can support the club, you can invest or buy up our, uh, our cryptocurrency if that's, your, if that's your thing, or you can just like or follow the club. You can sign up for our newsletter. Uh, we have a Substack. Uh, you can find that on our website, historyclub.club. The newsletter goes out early in the week. It lets you know what the topic is. It also sends some advanced information about the topic. Like uh, in this week's newsletter, I sent out a video of Matt Damon and Howard Zinn talking to each other that I found on YouTube, which was kind of cool. Um, so sign up for the newsletter. That's a good way to support the club. Uh, visit our website, historyclub.club. That's a good way to support the club. You can obviously um, use the send money button if you want to support the club financially. You can uh, buy some Jason coin if you want to support the club financially, but no obligation to do so. We will continue to do these rooms uh, regardless. And um, a quick plug of my own, I am actually moderating a panel as part of a different conference on Saturday morning. Uh, 10 a.m. Eastern on the 1619 Project. Uh, it's going to be a very similar conversation, I think, because we're going to be talking about, um, you know, uh, whose story gets told, what perspective it's told from, what gets left out of the history textbooks, and how that finds its way either into the media or into classrooms. And so if you're interested in that, 10 a.m. Eastern, it's free event. Uh, it'll be via Zoom. And if you go to my Twitter or my Instagram, you can find a link to it. Uh, I'll also put something on my social media tomorrow with the link. Um, so if you're interested in these types of conversations, you want to learn more about the 1619 Project, you can tune into that at 10 a.m. Eastern on Saturday. Otherwise, um, we will see you all again, uh, same bat time, same bat channel here on Clubhouse. And I appreciate everyone being involved and having a great conversation. And so it is officially 12 a.m. here on the East Coast. I'm going to turn into a pumpkin. And so I wish you all a very good evening. And uh, until we meet again here or elsewhere, have a wonderful night.